Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Dr. Karen Hutchison. Hey guys, welcome back to the Think Orphan podcast. This is Dr. Karen and I'm really, really excited to be here with you guys today. I'm very excited about our show. We've got a great one coming at you today. Phil, why don't you tell us what's going on today? Yeah, we got Kent Anon. Uh, he's the author of Slow Kingdom Coming and Aftershock, and he also is the co-director of Haiti Partners. He's doing some great work. You'll hear a lot about it, and he just is going to share some some really good stuff with us today. Uh, before we get to that interview, we're going to have another uh, Ask Dr. Karen segment uh, today, and then after the interview, you'll definitely want to stick around because we got some uh, really uh, we have some good thoughts from the field from Lisa Slavovsky with. International Justice Mission. We also have some more recommendations uh, to, to for you to be able to, to read or listen to. Um, but uh, right now, we're going to go to Dr. Karen, where she's going to share with us about vicarious trauma. It's a de- another term, another concept that, that often isn't understood, but is used a lot. So Karen, what is it? Great question. Um, You're probably going to find, Phil, that when you ask me a question, I'm going to start by defining a couple of other things first. That's probably going to be a pattern. I noticed that. (laughs) So um, (laughs) this is a really important concept, and you're going to hear me say that over and over again, too, but it's really going to be important as you listen to the podcast today that we have in store for you guys, because these concepts are very important, and they're they're crucial for our understanding as people providing care for others, whether that's as a mom parenting, whether it's me as a clinician providing care to my patients, whether it's someone working in an international setting or a domestic setting, working with children or teenagers or families. So Phil's question was vicarious trauma, but I'm actually going to start a couple of steps back and I'm going to start with some terms that are often interchangeably used. Some of them that's okay. Sometimes it's erroneously used. And so you guys have probably heard of a term called secondary stress. It's possible that you've heard of a term called compassion fatigue, and probably most, if not all of you have heard of the term burnout. And so let's start with secondary stress. And so what secondary traumatic stress is essentially exactly what's happening in that when we listen to or we see a traumatic event, when we hear a traumatic event that someone has shared with us, then if we experience those effects, if we experience a traumatic effect because we've listened to or watched a video of something that has happened, then we're experiencing that trauma in a secondary way, okay? And so secondary stress is often interchanged with the word compassion fatigue. And so compassion fatigue, it's really kind of a slightly less stigmatizing way of talking about secondary stress. And when we see compassion fatigue happening, essentially, we're experiencing symptoms of trauma. And so we may have some irritability. We may have some um, uncontrollable uncontrollable, uncontrollable anger, or we may have emotions that we typically don't feel very often. It's probably something that's new and we notice as something that's different from us. The term vicarious trauma is actually a little bit more serious of a term. Vicarious trauma is actually a process that happens, and it typically happens when people have an invested concern or they have some type of investment in providing care for others. And so what vicarious trauma is essentially is that when we start to become um, disillusioned or we start to lose hope or things start to become confusing, the way that we see the world changes. And so this process of change, this process of vicarious trauma happens often because we tend to care so deeply about the people that we're caring for. We feel committed and we feel responsible for providing that care. And essentially it starts to change the way that we think and feel about a situation. It can lead us to feeling overwhelmed. It can lead us to feel feeling really burdened and ultimately confused and sometimes hopeless. And the part that I think is incredibly important for our listeners, Phil, is that when vicarious trauma starts to happen, when vicarious trauma is happening, because it's a process, it's unfolding over time, there's often a lot of bitterness and there's often a lot of hopelessness. And we see that it can impact the way that we're functioning as Christians. It can impact our spiritual journey. And so unfortunately, this can happen a lot, especially in international settings where we see people who, again, may have started out with the greatest and most honorable and Christ-like intentions, but maybe 
over time they've been um, hurt or they've been experienced, or excuse me, they've been um, through experiences that have hurt them and they become disillusioned. And ultimately the way that they think about a people group, the way that they think about a situation, even the way that they think about providing services or ministry um, has changed and it becomes filled with kind of negative emotions of hopelessness and bitterness, of anger, of um, escaping into behaviors that cause us to lean on substances or unhealthy ways of coping with things that are happening. And so I think just knowing that these things do happen, it's not something that just happens to missionaries. It's not something that just happens across the ocean, but that any of us that are providing care for children or adolescents or families, we are potentially at risk for experiencing secondary stress, for experiencing compassion fatigue, and for experiencing vicarious trauma. And so that leads into one of the most important things is just being aware of how we're doing, having people speak into our lives and intentionally providing care for ourselves. And I think you're going to hit, I know that you guys listening, you're, you're going to hear um, in the podcast today how important some of these aspects are. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think that we're going to have... Um just a few episodes, including hopefully I'll be able to just do an interview with you on some of these issues, um, this self-care stuff that it is so important, so important um, for all of us doing this work to be able to really understand, really understand ourselves, really be self-aware in these issues. I know Peter Greer, I was able to interview him a long time ago, um, and we're going to air that interview here in the next few weeks. Uh, maybe we'll do a couple back-to-back on self-care Um, so it's definitely something to be thinking about deeply and to really, really understand them. So that was, again, just a nugget to be, to get you thinking about these issues. And and we'll definitely give you some resources on the show notes to be able to dig deeper into these issues. So with that, we are going to get to this interview with Kent Anon. And I know this is a guy that, again, this was an exciting thing for me. I said it in the interview as well. Uh, Troy Livesay, who I was able to interview in um, an earlier season, he recommended the book by Kent Anon, Slow Kingdom Coming, which got me reading the book. And then I said, I, I got to interview this guy for the show. So that's what I was able to do. And here's that interview. Ken, it's great to have you with us on the show today. Really good to be here with you, Phil. Well, this is kind of fun today. This is one of the the first uh, interviews I've had that's actually been a result of a past uh, interview's answer to the question of what is something he's been reading. And I know that Troy lives, say, a few episodes ago, um, had mentioned your books, Low Kingdom Coming, uh, and it really intrigued me. And it's something that I picked up, read, and have now uh, gotten in touch with you, gotten to know you a little bit, and I'm excited for those uh, the folks out there listening to get to know you as well. Hopefully, after this, we'll be similarly uh, provoked to pick up your book and read it, because it definitely has impacted my life in, in, in good ways. So uh, with that, uh, Ken, can you just share a little bit? I know a lot of the folks out there don't know you and really don't know what you're about. And so can you briefly tell them your story and kind of how you got to be where you are today, writing books? and working with Haiti Partners. Yeah. So I moved to Haiti 13 years ago. So I'll start there and go backwards. But my wife and I uh, got on a plane uh, almost exactly 13 years ago, actually 13 years and a couple weeks. Uh, got on a plane. We were visiting my parents who lived in Toronto at the time. Flew down to Haiti and within 24 hours we were living out in the countryside. Um, tin roof over our heads, no running water, no electricity with a Haitian farming family. And we lived with them for seven months. They didn't speak any English. We didn't speak any Creole. And uh, I just learned life from them and language and culture. And that started this ministry of Haiti Partners, like eventually, uh, that I've been part of for the last 13 years. So working on education in Haiti. Um, I'm sure we'll dive a little bit more into that later. But what had set me up for wanting to make that decision to move to Haiti was that right after I finished college, I moved over to Europe, worked with a refugee ministry for a couple of years. And that really shaped the trajectory of my life. And I came back and went to seminary just to get for my own faith and to figure out how I could help down the road, finished seminary, went and worked with another refugee ministry, fell in love, got married. And so it's been this sort of back and forth for me of studying and seeking how I could be involved in, in God's story of justice that happens in the world. And uh, the first stage was really with refugees. And then I've been really grateful to get to 
um, do that with uh, with Haiti for the last 13 years. And along the way, you know, so many questions coming up about faith and life and following Jesus and how to do this kind of work well, how to and how to learn from what I failed at. And so mm-hmm. that led me into writing three books along the way. Wow. And one of the things that you you talked about it a few times there is is the refugees. And today, obviously, we have such a massive refugee crisis going on around the world. And how has your work with refugees kind of impacted the way you see uh, the crisis today and really how you do everything you do? Yeah, it, it really is a big one because I thought, you know, a, a family friend had recruited me to become part of this refugee ministry. And I thought, oh, I'd do that for two years, you know, like a Peace Corps and then do something different. But then I got over there and I was meeting and not just meeting, but becoming friends with folks who at that time had just uh, fled a war in Sierra Leone, you know, and mm-hmm. left everything and their families behind or come out of Sarajevo, um, these different places. And uh, I think, you know, it become it became so personal to me. So it's not just people out there or like a, a vague love or a vague threat, um, but instead these people. And I, I think to love and care about individual people. And there's also something about just at that point when you're up close and you get to know them to see how easily that could be you or like how easily that mm-hmm. could be me. And, um, and then it's a, a, that love your neighbor as yourself and just thinking about the role, re- role reversal. And, um, and, and for me, then it becomes the issues are complex, but there's also this real simple thing to me underneath it of, we're supposed to love our neighbors who are most vulnerable. And I've known some of them and man, they've, they've lost everything. And and shouldn't we, whenever we can step in to help out. Right. Right. So, I mean, I know there's no one answer, but what would your, what would your encouragement be to people listening who, you know, this is something that's just out there. This is just something that's on the TV or on the news feed that they're getting. And it's really not real. It's almost like a movie that, that they're watching. How would you encourage them to, to kind of make it, how can they make it more real? How can it become something to them with, you know, short of going over and visiting like you did or being part of it like you were, um, what's something that we can do with something we can read something we can know, um, or live to, to understand it a little bit better? Yeah. I, I, a few things, quick things come to mind. One is, you know, um, I think reading the stories where we actually get to get to follow, you know, read a news story that goes a little bit more in depth. So it's actually about a family story, you know, mm-hmm. so we actually get to to know people or empathize with the individual people. I think another one in our climate today is, um, you know, I think I think most of us want to live. Fear is like a regular response to things that are fear, fearful in the world. But I think in life, you know, I think most of us want to be guided by love, not by fear, you know. And so fear is going to be there. But I think that would be a second encouragement is um, let's have fear where there's a healthy reason for it. But what drives our our decisions and our, our caring for people? Let's let's let that be love. Uh, and then the third part is where it's possible in, in my travels and speaking uh, with my book, I met, met some different fam- uh, churches, you know, that have like welcomed Syrian refugees. And it's, it's a big commitment and hard work, but then it just seems like it's been really transformative and can be a really beautiful experience for the family who finds refuge and safety in a new life. And then for a church who gets to learn how to be hospitable and have, has their lives enriched as well. So, you know, as I talk with different people who welcome refugees, it, uh, I always hear, I always hear really positive stories about what it means to everybody. Yeah. And that's something that, uh, for some listening, I mean, we're, this has been downloaded in 63 or so countries. And so I know that yeah. there's some people listening who this is a lot closer and a lot more real, but for mm. those of us here in the United States, for those of us in, in countries that, that it's not as, as real, I, I would be surprised if there weren't some refugees living really close to wherever you are yeah. and churches doing the work that you were talking about. So I, I, I too encourage people, um, to really just seek that out and, and get involved to the extent you can. Let's shift gears now and, and, and get a little bit more into uh, the Haiti Partners and the work that you're doing and, and really um, the collaboration that Haiti Partners is, is a part of in, in Haiti. And, and can you just share with what Haiti Partners is about, what you're doing, and how collaboration really is a huge part of what you're doing? 
Yeah, our focus is education. We say we, we want to help patients change Haiti through education. And, you know, any country has lots of problems. Haiti has a lot of challenges. And so our thought is, what? how can we kind of help the people who are going to ultimately solve their own problems in their country? A lot of my work focuses on churches. We work with schools. We have seven different elementary schools. A lot of my work is with churches, and we get to work with young seminary students who are you know, these promising young students. They get scholarships from us, and they get undergrad degrees in seminary and they're every weekend they're out working with different church on children's rights issues and they're growing as as community leaders uh, on justice issues so it's been incredibly fun to get to see develop materials for grassroots training that we do all over the country and then see this group of you know 32 young seminary students just grow as leaders and we've graduated two classes we have four classes in right now and then also as we do that we're helping working with churches and seminaries to shift some of their views and when i say we like my haitian colleagues you know to help shift some of their views on different justice issues in the country so it's it's really amazing to get to use education as the the overall umbrella, but really we're, we've been working to think how, how can we help engage and protect people who are most vulnerable um, in society there. Hmm. And how, how do you select the partners and develop the relationships kind of in healthy developmental ways? Yeah, it's it take one of it, the things I've learned from Haitian colleagues like my friend friend Nell is um, to to go slow. Um, mm-hmm. So you know the title "Slow Kingdom Coming" of my book, but um, the best collaborations I've found are the ones that have time to develop organically. You know, so neither side is forcing it. You can build trust so that we can go deeper, do projects that that we do together, learn about together, and then get a little bit more responsibility, a little bit more trusting. So I've done that with the individuals. That's how we've developed the team that we have. I've done that with the institutional partners we, we work with. So and my my American ways, you know, I'm down there and I'm I'm like meet someone, have an idea. All right, let's go all in, you know, and get it going by Tuesday. And uh, <laughs> and I, I've I've learned the collaboration that works best. You know, there are times to push forward, and it doesn't mean we work any less hard. But uh, a lot of the best collaborations, as I look back, have been the ones that have been been pretty organic and and um, and that we give time to breathe so that we can have trust and really make sure that everybody who's collaborating feels like they're you know they're winning and getting a lot of a lot out of it for what their goals are right and, and and one of the things that has been really a lot of people are talking about nowadays is kind of success matrix matrices and things like that how do you measure success in your partnerships uh, a lot of it for me just because because the work is focused in Haiti is um when i see uh, either like our pro- Haitian program coordinator, if I see a Haitian student we're working with, a Haitian church we're working with, not just do like what we've set out to do together, but then take that and do something on their own. You know, so if the student is doing kind of what they're supposed to be doing with in our internship, like that's that's cool. That's a success in a way. When I really get excited about success is they've done that and then they go and start some project to help uh, help kids in, a, in an orphanage that's exploiting them. Like then on their own initiative, they're stepping in, doing that on their own. And we get to hear the story later. It's like that's real success to me. Yeah. Do you have do you have any story off the top of your head that you can share of, of that, that um, just a real success story that uh, yeah, that's the audience one would be encouraged the, by? Yeah, I'll, I'll sort of have to change a few of the details just for mm-hmm. confidentiality, but um, was with one of our students who graduated a couple of years ago. And that, that's why I just mentioned that she's on my mind in this young woman graduated two years ago, so she's not in our program anymore, but we stay in close touch. And she um, really worked recently to help shut down an orphanage that was exploiting kids. The kids were not doing well, not cared for. And she uh, literally risked her life um, to help these 40 or 50 kids get back to their families uh, who were being exploited. And um, the fact that she would have eyes to see that that she would seek counsel on how to approach it wisely, that she would take a serious risk to her own uh, health and and life, and then to do it because these values that we've worked on with her and with other students um, were were important to her, were worth everything for her, and and ultimately um, something far beyond us or Haiti partners, that she just thought this is what what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to... um, 
to live a life of love mm. is to protect the, the most vulnerable among us. So that she did it to me was just super humbling and she deserves uh, the credit for it, but that we got to be part of her, um, her formation, you know, that, right. that, uh, that, that led her to do that is really humbling and exciting to be part of. Yeah. And I just love the, the developmental work that, like you said, you're really investing in empowering the, the local Haitians who, who we know are able, more than able to do this than, than we are in their, in their country. Um, and you know, but the reality is anyone working in Haiti over the last few years, um, last decade or so has done their share of relief work, right. In the, in the wake of the major disasters that we all have heard and know about, um, 2010 earthquake, hurricane Matthew recently, mm-hmm. other issues, you know, but I know that one of your, you know, core tenants really is, is development of these, of these people. And so how, how have you in Haiti partners kind of made the the tough decisions of when to transition and how to transition from relief work to rehabilitation to development, you know, as we've, a lot of us have read in When Helping Hurts and, and similar, right. similar books and, and works. How do you make those decisions and how, how are you able to do it? Yeah, it's, I mean, you have other people like you mentioned, Troy Livesey, and, uh, you know, he's been working there for so long and you know, his family and they do such good work down there. So, and, but like you said, all of us were thrown into this, relief work when many of us were there for more grassroots long-term development work we had actually started i'd been in haiti longer like for six years or something before that but we had just started haiti partners two months before the earthquake Hmm. happened so uh, we were learning on the fly and with little sleep you know what to (laughs) what to do but it was amazing to be this bridge between this isn't quite your question but i'll get to that but it was amazing experience to be this bridge between people's generosity and then uh, on one side from around the world wanting to give and then um and then people haitians people being so courageous on the ground in the face of disaster so to get this close-up view of of both that generosity and courage was a humbling thing to be part of um you know, I, I think it's just before the earthquake is a little bit different from the hurricane. And uh, this will help answer that question a little bit. Like for the earthquake, um, like where my wife and I live, where we had several schools was right close to the epicenter. So the closest town really to the epicenter of the earthquake. So the home we lived in, schools we worked with, uh, neighbors, the town was just devastated. You know, everything was down. So there's just no, no um, no way to do it but to respond, you know, fully. And we were involved in Port-au-Prince and Petroville, all these places that were so devastated. So we were just all in on helping. And then we just try to keep having conversations with our, our trusted Haitian friends and colleagues along the way. And, you know, at one point we were, my American colleagues and I were like, you know, does this change everything? Do we, like, are we just relief or are we just like economic development? What do we do when, when you see this whole these cities collapse. And what was interesting is the Haitian colleagues and people we worked with said, no, this like, we need education more than ever. It sort of redoubled our effort. You know, so we paused, hit pause. We're helping with relief, but then some of the best practices in those cases are get a small school up and running. So we had like these tent schools where the schools were mm-hmm. because it helps families and normalcy for kids. And then you're talking, thinking about trauma and how to go through that. But then uh, what was interesting is hearing from Haitian colleagues and communities saying, hey, let's keep investing in education because ultimately we don't want to just respond to disasters. We want to build ourselves up so we're not vulnerable to disasters in the same way that that we were for this. So I think right. that investment in long-term education, I think, is key. Now, when the hurricane struck, we, um, we aren't in a place that got the worst devastation and we just don't have the resources to do a lot there. We're in a place, but we did have a network of uh, churches and one school that was that was hit some. So we were able to to help out by focusing in this kind of secondary place that was hit. And um, and there just we we would have been stretched to go down to another area where we didn't have roots. You know, didn't feel like the right decision to make um, to pull us away. So it, a lot of it for us is is being strategic and having conversations. And, and, um, you know, I think none of these things are quite the same. So keep on adjusting along the way. Yeah. I think a lot of it just has that, the mindset, right. The, 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 you know, planning, the intentionality, you know, and then in the midst of it, things will happen. Right. Right. Yeah. And then you stay, I think staying true to your, your 
like core convictions about respect, you know, how we're going to do this for respect, how we're going to do this. We're going to have good process of decision-making that are including the right people. Yeah. We'll get to a lot of that later, uh, as we talk about slow kingdom coming, but before we get there, I want to talk about the, the first book that, or one of the first, this, I guess, I think it was your second book. Um, but you wrote a book, uh, after the 2010 earthquake, uh, aftershock, and it's, it's about the difficult questions of faith that arise in the midst of suffering. Now, we're not going to be able to get into this book fully. Definitely encourage people to go out there and grab it. It's a fantastic book. But uh, what caused you to write that book, and, and what did you learn while writing it? Um, and, and lastly, kind of in that same answer, if you could just share us, you know, what do you hope people will take away from it? Yeah. Yeah. The subtitle of the book is uh, Searching for Honest Faith When Your World is Shaken. So what had happened is I, I was supposed to be writing a book. This earthquake struck and I got in touch with the publisher and said, you know, we have too much work to do in Haiti. I'm not going to write anything. And I think it just came up in a PS or something like, you know, I could write about um, you know, responding to this disaster and they were interested. So it's a pretty raw book. I, I wrote it in those six months after the earthquake in the midst of all the work we were doing, and it's really my psalm. I see it as a psalm um, mm-hmm. in the midst of these kind of extreme circumstances where uh, I think not just in theory or not reflecting back, but in the midst of it sort of asking myself, you know, what do I still believe? Um, and, you know, thinking, you know, I think I, I wish and many of us wish we had a God who um, protected us from suffering. And we don't seem to get that God oftentimes, but but I think we do get a God who's with us in the suffering. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was really what, what I was having to rediscover for myself. Uh, it felt like if I didn't let this psalm out, um, I, my faith might be in trouble at the, at the end of it. So I was just really trying to be honest in the midst of it. And what's been interesting to me and really rewarding as I told people's stories there my own story is the stories there and some stories from other places other than Haiti is the the people I've heard from who have re- read the book are uh, like a, a mother who had a stillborn child you know and and um, just felt like her, her faith was sort of shattered in this book or something about the raw kind of honesty of it that let her kind of enter back into a uh, kind of talking with God and thinking about mm. her faith or a father let me know he had left the book lying on his um, lying on his coffee table and he and his son you know had, hadn't had sort of been able to have deep conversations for a while and his son a teenager 15 or 16 picked it up and um, and read it and actually opened up their first real conversations about the meaning of life and some of these harder things that mm. they'd had in a long long time so I think that's my What's been rewarding, and I think what I'm, I'm hopeful about the people who find it is that it can be, sort of, a, an honest reflection that takes, take, I think, takes the hard things on and doesn't come up with easy pat answers, but I think is encouraging along the way. Right. Yeah. Man, that's so important. I, I love yeah. hearing stories like that because that makes it all worth it, right? All the work that you oh, yeah. put in that book, exactly. just a couple exactly. stories makes it all worth it. And I just, that's so encouraging to me too. I know know it is encouraging because when you write these things, right? I think podcasting would be similar and you do all the, all the work and it's a bit of a work of, of faith, you know, Mm -hmm. because all the effort has to come in before you know if it's going to actually help anybody. So it it is encouraging when it can be meaningful to someone else. Yeah. And then you actually hear it because I'm sure there's a whole lot more stories like that. Um, you actually hear them, which is, I think God just given us those little snippets of of what he's doing through these different things. So let's go. Yeah. Um, speaking of another book, um, we've talked about it. We've mentioned it a few times, and this is this is really what I want to kind of spend the next uh, little bit on is Slow Kingdom Coming, and uh, it really takes on Micah six eight. Talks about five practices for doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly in our world. Um, great book. Troy was right when he said it was fantastic. I don't even think he was done with it when he recommended it. He was said he was working through it slowly, you know, which is appropriate given the title. But, um, again, what led you to write that book and, uh, how do you hope people will grow as a result of reading it? Yeah, I, I think I, I had realized I was coming up, I was thinking, oh, I'm getting the itch to write again and realized I'd been at this work for about 20 years now, you know, somehow, somehow those 20 years go by, you know, after <laughs> finishing, um, college and thought, man, I've, I think I've learned a lot of things along the way, learned by doing them well, by doing them badly, by my own experiences, by watching other people. So it was just in the back of my mind was, um, you know, what have I learned if I could pass this on to other people doing similar work or, you know, people graduating from college, what would I, what would I have liked 
um, to hear. Another thing that had happened, you mentioned this book, When Helping Hurts. Like I was out speaking and talking with lots of groups, having short-term groups coming, and there had been this wave, you know, maybe seven, eight years, or maybe 10 years now, you know, wave of books, When Helping Hurts, Toxic Charity, a few others that had, I think, really rightly named and their their titles are perfect. Like name that this helping other people is more complicated than it than it, than we wish it were, or it's more complicated than we think it is. Right. Um, and so, but when I was out there speaking with people, I think one helping hurts is is brilliant and so important. Um, but I also found that when I was talking with people, that uh, people some people were feeling paralyzed, you know, in in those years mm-hmm. afterwards, and thinking. Now, when helping hurts like Brian Ficker and others have kept doing really good work of saying what's the positive things we right. can do. But but, you know, sometimes those don't reach the same, you know, don't sell as many books or kind of don't catch people's attention in the same way. So I was I was feeling that sometimes on and off in my own work and I was talking with people and they were feeling that. And I, I thought, well, you know, I think I have and I see a lot of people who have found a way to do this kind of work where we don't have to be paralyzed, but we can be thoughtful. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, I, that's that's what I was trying to step into with this with this book. And what I hope people would get out of it is we don't have to either pretend like when helping hurts isn't true, you know, because it is true right. that right. We, that we have to be thoughtful. Um, so we don't have to either be naive on one hand or but we don't have to be paralyzed uh, too much on the other hand, but there's this way to move forward that's uh, that's thoughtful, but that's takes, taking action and learning and helping people along the way. Yeah. Well, I think it definitely does that. Um, and, and so let's dive into it and the, and the practices and um, that really were born out of your life experiences, your personal study on the subject. Um, can you just briefly introduce the five practices and just, just what they are? And then yeah. we'll dive into a couple of them. Um, sorry folks out there, you're going to have to get the book to get the full story <laughs> on all these. And I, I do strongly recommend getting this aftershock and anything Kent's written. Um, you can get these guys on Amazon. We'll also have them in the show notes, links to these, uh, links to both Haiti Partners website and the books, uh, that you can pick up. But can you, um, just again, briefly introduce the five practices for the folks? Yeah. Thanks, Phil. And yeah, it's uh, and my the idea to me was, okay, there's not going to be an exact formula or there's not some solution that fix everything. But I think if we have these five practices. It really gives us a way forward into working with a refugee family or working with homeless people in your town or going on a short term trip to Mexico or, you know, whatever the Mm -hmm. case might be or working with or, you know, working with an orphanage or or something. So the first practice is attention. Um, and the idea of this is really how are we awakening to justice and where are we called? Uh, so we can't solve all the we should be aware that there's a need for us to help uh, people who are suffering. But we also can't we can't realistically respond to all the suffering. So how do we discern kind of where we're called uh, to help where we where we can Mm-hmm. And where we should be, and and that seeing that as a practice, that I think if we don't do that, then we get into compassion fatigue, and we will burn out, or we can become numb of not engaging. So, what's this kind of practice that can help us uh, help us to do what what we're supposed to, but mm-hmm. but not more than we're supposed to, or more than we're able to, and I, which I think can be taking on responsibility, but also be freeing at the same time right. uh, when we practice this. Um, the second practice is a practice of confession. I think people don't always talk with this about this with this kind of work, but I found the only way that's kept me going and some of the people I know going in this kind of work is is, is knowing that the right posture to go is to help other people is not sort of hey I'm I'm up here going to give you a uh, give you a hand up and you're down or reaching down to help others up, but you know I, I think of it almost as a posture of being on my knees. You know when I go thinking, you know I'm broken and I'm going to be working with people who are broken and and if I'm aware of my vulnerabilities, I can help so much better. So there aren't always sins, but just confessing vulnerabilities. So like for example, I like to feel good when I help. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think we're that's how we're made so we can help each other out. But. Right. But if I confess that, what it helps me do is slow down enough to think, okay, when I'm doing this, am I doing it so I'm maximizing my good feelings or actually maximizing the way that this can actually be of the best help to the person we're helping? You know, so uh, what might maximize my feeling good is, you know, giving 
uh, what, what would be an example, you know, like giving my shoes to someone, uh, when they're there, but if I need to slow down enough and think, Oh, well maybe, you know, that's kind of, is that introducing something complicated into their relationship and family dynamic or whatever? So just slowing down slightly. So it's not about my feelings, but about the person I'm helping, or I confess compassion fatigue just when I'm right. totally empty and feel like I can't help anymore. And that usually helps me get renewed and, mm-hmm. and going, I confess my privilege. So when I'm in Haiti, if I'm not confessing my privilege and aware of the fact that I have a passport, I'm literate because of education I received, I, I get enough calories today. You know, if right. I'm not aware and confessing that, I'm just going to be, uh, I'm not going to be aware in the right ways to be able to serve and listen to my own neighbor well. So mm-hmm. it's practice of confession, I think, that can help renew us and, and make us better at what we're doing. Right. I love that chapter, by the way, just to oh, interrupt you a little thanks. bit. That was fantastic. And in yeah, it was definitely, that was worth the price of the book right there. So thanks. Yeah, no, it's trying. And I, I think in some of these things, you know, I feel take a, a few risks when you're writing and mm-hmm. think, Oh, this feels really personal. But usually those are the ones that, um, you kind of get a bit naked and put yourself out right. there. But usually those are the things that you find are universal. I, mm-hmm. I imagine your listeners find that as, as they hear you talking and interviewing as well. Um, third practice is practice of respect. This is just encouraging people to, you know, how do we love our neighbor as ourselves and how do we how do we slow down and do that? How do we listen more deeply? How do we enter into imagine or letting our imaginations engage so we can help people? Well, it's just doing some of this extra work so we're not helping on a superficial level, but we can get get deeper into respecting people. Um, I tell a, a story in that chapter about in Haiti when you're out in the countryside when you go and visit someone, you don't just walk into their yard because life happens in the yard. It's like bursting into someone's front door in Pittsburgh or something like that. So you stop at the edge, of the threshold, and you say honor, which means honor. Mm. And then you wait to hear the word respect, which means respect. And, uh, and you don't go in. So it's like, I'm coming with honor for you and your values and your family. And then you wait to hear this word respect, which is, okay, I'm going to receive you respect into our family. And I, I love that tradition. I thought it was beautiful. And then at some point as I was working there, I thought, oh, this is actually a great metaphor for how we help each other. We don't just burst in and go to help someone else's life. There are these pauses that we can take where we listen for each other and, and think about how am I going to even value and honor and respect the person I'm helping? And and am I listening for for growing in trust and, and, and getting deeper so we can really help each other well. So that's the practice of respect. Right. Um, next practice is practice of partnering. You had mentioned earlier, you know, how collaboration is so key to doing any kind of work. If it's in your, you know, at your job and you're part of a charity or your church or neighborhood council, whatever it is, you know, there's just going to be a lot of partnering. So try to give people a, a way to think about how to partner well so we can, we can do it for the long term so it lasts and so it can make a uh, make a deep difference. Uh, and then the fifth practice is a practice of truthing. And it's not a word that I made up, not a word that Stephen Colbert made up. Um, <laughs> um, but it's this scientific practice where uh, like geologists and some others use it where you take a big picture kind of aerial view so like they'll take a satellite picture but then they don't think they really understand everything until they're down on the ground walking with that map and seeing what's actually on the ground and to me it's this great uh sort of image and word that led me to think about something i'd done in my life and i'd learned from where oh we always want the best ideas as we help other people but we also need to be walking the ground and i think um i, I learned some of this early on from a friend of mine named scott i was working as i mentioned as a this refugee ministry i was 20 21 years old and went to visit him in athens and there's something really special about how he was doing this work with refugees. And as I learned more about Scott, I found out that he had spent uh, one week, one, and he was married, he had three kids. Uh, he had spent one week in a summer and one week in a winter uh, out living with the refugees that he was serving. So he, in the winter, he didn't take his winter jacket. He slept on the subway grate with them. He went to get food with them, you know, that did all this. And I just thought, wow, there, there are a couple things that have like two things I think happened there and not everyone has to do it that extremely, but you know, one is he got more insight into how to help. Well, like, mm-hmm. Oh, so there's, there are enough food places right now, but there are no places offering showers. You know, and he hadn't, he had learned a lot, but he, he didn't really realize that till he was 
out there. And then uh, the second is that I think his love for the people he was serving entered a little deeper into the marrow of his bones. Right. Um, and so that, that became sort of a, a guiding way. And knowing that we never know the full truth and it's this iterative process where we keep getting better and better. But that's this uh, fifth practice where we we keep on learning. We want our love to be guided by truth and be and keep on growing along the way. Yeah. And your desire and constant yearning for learning um, is very apparent um, in the conversations you and I have had offline in reading your books. Um, just in any time I've ever heard you speak, it's 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 so apparent. And I think this process of truthing really is at the heart of it. And I think it's it's so important because there's so many, I think, uh, people doing this work, a lot of people listening, I'm sure are on one side or the other are either on the kind of the, under the microscope minutia of day to day, or they're at the 30,000 foot view flying over all these different things. And either one in a vacuum is going to be missing something. Right. And so I think it's so important. And, um, I know that you also talked about in, in the book, uh, how truthing, relates to all the other practices as well. And it really is a, it's fluid. It's not something that you do each of these and it's a step-by-step, but it's constantly tweaking things. Can you just explain that a little bit? Yeah, I think sort of as we, as then we're truth thinking, like, you know, we've done this in some of the work I do in Haiti that I mentioned, like we, we were just doing grassroots for a while, work for a while. And then we realized, man, we're, we're doing all this grassroots work for justice. But then if the pastors of the church in our case, aren't buying in, like it just, it, it, there's a limit to how much it can grow. So that was our work and study and think, okay, well, we need to adapt. So then we're thinking, okay, well, let's, train pastors and okay, okay that, but then these seminaries have them for like four years and send out the new ones. So then we think, okay, well, we actually, we need to be engaged in the seminaries so that they're being formed and helped to be shaped in these ideas. And so it was this, this process of developing our program over 10 years uh, of doing things well, but then not well enough. And, and uh, I think it's that sort of drive that I have with, with my colleagues to keep on getting, uh, getting better. So that, that truthing process. And then once we learn that, then you kind of enter back into the cycle. Okay, well, that's, that's what's working and what isn't, but then where are we actually called that practice of attention? And then, mm-hmm. all right, let's confess the parts. Like, why did we get some of these things wrong? And, you know, and then back into respect. Okay, well, let's, let's move forward. But how if we need to partner with seminaries. How are we going to do this in a way that's, that's marked by respect, not going in to change them, but to serve them, you know? So I think these, for me, these five practices have been really helpful because I, I uh, unfortunately, I wish I were just a great at all of them, but I find I just keep on <laughs> needing to cycle back, cycle back through them over and over again. And that's yeah. where I see them as, um, as these kind of spiritual practices as well. You know, they can keep on, on shaping me, not just in the work I do, but hopefully in the kind of person I'm becoming. Yeah. And I think that's so good. And I think the, the one part about the, the practicing attention that a lot of people, struggle with, I think, as we're doing this work and we see so many needs is really the need to focus. You know, once you're awakened to these massive issues, as you talk about the awakening, um, to focus on one thing. And there's a, there's a Haitian proverb, you know, it might be a little PG 13 for some of you out there, but can you share that? Cause I think that it really brings home the point <laughs> that we need to focus. I just finished the book essentialism and I think to have an essential intent for all of us personally, corporately in the ministries we're doing to have the kind of that one thing is so important. Otherwise we're not going to be as effective as we can, as we can be. It's in that idea of collaboration as well, that we know other people are better in certain things and we have our purpose as well. So can you share that and kind of share what it might look like in, in, in the, in the the stuff we're doing? Yeah. And I I really like how you said that, Phil, like just kind of keep finding what's, what's essential for what what we're supposed to do. Well, you know, a lot of life, uh, rural life in Haiti and people are outside. And so there's this proverb that says, uh, like, um, if you're, P and so people are you know having to go to the bathroom outside. So if your P is too spread out, you know it doesn't make the foam. It doesn't foam up, and it's sort of this this kind of funny earthy way that people use the proverb down there to say like if your focus is too spread out, you never see any difference uh, right. being made. And um, and you know I I do think 
whether it's in a place because there's so much need or for us, you know, if there's a, you know, new need every three hours coming across Facebook or something like, how do you do this? And, and what's the, and there, I think it's this practice that can be, um, be really freeing to say, well, what am I called to? Like, what, where am I supposed to make my difference? Where do I focus so I can see a change? And I think what happens when we focus is it can feel like, we're saying no to a lot of things, but that yes becomes bigger. And what I've found is when our yes becomes bigger and we see where to focus, um, then we can actually get better at helping that area. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you keep on bouncing around from thing to thing, I don't actually start improving. Like if I'm doing, you know, homeless ministry this week and next week I'm, you know, doing something with kids and the next week I'm onto some issue. Like I'll never realize what mistakes I'm making or get to do that practice of truthing to get deeper. Right. When I camp for a while on on helping something out, like then I can become more useful because I'm going to to learn and accumulate knowledge and like you said, you know, and then meet other people who are really good at this and get to be mentored by them. So yeah, you know, I think there's just a lot of benefit in our our busy world to to have our attention be focused in all kinds of ways in life, but that includes how we do justice and help our neighbors. Absolutely. Well, as we've kind of alluded to throughout this this interview as well, the the idea of short term missions, which we're not going to be able to solve the the issues and all the the controversy and discussion and debate today, but you in the book talk a lot about you know how these practices can can be directly applied to short term missions, but you also have th- three questions um, that you kind of you lay out that we can ask, uh, to vastly improve the way we do short term missions. At least that's the way I see it. Um, can you share those questions and and why you think, uh, why they're so effective? Um, if we seriously examine ourselves through them. Yeah, I I thought, because I've been part of, um, short term mission trips. I've gone on them. They were formative for me when I was back in high school and I've, I've led some of them as well. So, you know, I was thinking, well, these, and, and to see them do well and see them do badly. So I was thinking, well, these three questions, I think, you know, there, there are other important issues. But I thought these three questions, um, to me, can really help us run through the grid if we're, if we're doing a good job on these or if we're being exploitative. And one is, um, how are we respecting people when we go? You know, so how are we speaking about people? Are we looking to be, are we, is it all about us or is it actually about the people we're, we're going to visit? How are we talking about people? Are we taking people's pictures without their permission you know what are we saying on our facebook posts so like really thinking about this love our neighbor as ourselves and make it like take some time there you know and uh and if we answer that question well i think that can help us a lot uh the second question is a lot of people go on these trips and come back and say well the hospitality of people was was just incredible and you know they had so little but they they received us into their their homes into their lives and all that and so the second question i have is okay if we receive this hospitality then uh, what is our commitment to them for the long term? Mm. Because if we just went somewhere where people have very few resources and they're incredibly generous to us and we leave without a long-term commitment, then uh, then maybe we exploited them instead of sharing a meaningful experience with them. Right. Um, and I think if we're not asking that question, we may, we may leave unaware because people are being generous and kind to us. And if, if we don't ask that, we may leave and be on to the next. That was a meaningful experience. We're on to the next thing. But, you know, if we, if we did that and we visited a community where there are a lot of needs and they received us well, uh, I think there might be implied there that we have to have some kind of long-term commitment. And then the third question is, what difference does it make in my life when I return back home? You know, so like we've, we've started out talking about uh, refugees, you know, so we go, go visit somewhere. So what is... What is um, visiting people who are in need, who are vulnerable, mean for how I vote about uh, on issues that would have mm-hmm. an impact on refugees? Or you know, um, how how does it make a difference for how I I plan my personal budget or how how we make decisions as a church? So so those three questions of how do I respect people when I go? What kind of long term implication does it have for my relationship with them and helping in the long term? And then thirdly, what difference does it make in my life when I come back home? I think that can be a helpful grid 
to run short-term missions through just because we, I think people go with good hearts mm-hmm. um, on short-term missions, but I think uh, I call it in the book, I think we have to pay a bit of a respect tax right. uh, when we do this because I think we're, we're coming from the place of privilege. We have the chance to go and a lot of people don't. And so I think there's a, um, there's a bit of a respect tax um, by answering those three questions well, that if we pay in, in the long term, it's going to be good for the people we visit as well as good for us. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's that's the goal I think we all have. I mean, when we're when we're mm-hmm. doing these things, no one wants to hurt people in the process right. if they're going on a yeah. trip. So, yeah, exactly. And that's why I think the discussion is so good. That's been going on um, over the last you know several years. So. Yeah. Well, with that, let's move into the last couple questions. Um, you know, really, this this next one is is the one, like I said, the one that led me to to get in touch with you, which I'm very mm-hmm. thankful for. Um, what have you read or listened to or watched uh, recently or or in the last couple of years that's most impacted your thinking on the care of orphaned and at risk children? Yeah, I, I think a, a lot of it's been. Um, it's like even those books, just because I was writing, so I was rereading some of these books, you know, like uh, When Helping Hurts. And um, I think a big a big trip for me that helped shape my thinking about this is um, back, I think it's two years ago now, I went to um, Thailand and Cambodia mm. and spent time in Cambodia. So I was thinking about this with the, this question and being there in Cambodia and uh, exactly what you're focused on, which I so appreciate, Phil, what you're you're focused on and helping a, a more thoughtful approach to this. And I was there in Cambodia and we met with I went with a foundation that I do some work with there and we met with probably 12 or 14 ministries, you know, in five days. So it's just it was kind of a crazy schedule, but, yeah. you know, like a morning and midday and night. And to go and some of them would be meeting with the staff. Sometimes, you know, we went and spent this time with this one group and then we went out and met this uh, this old woman. She was probably in her 70s Cambodian woman, really poor. Um, and they had a packed dirt floor and this, you know, kind of a corrugated tin house. But this group was helping her to care for her grandkids, like sort of as foster care there Mm -hmm. and for me um being out there and getting to talk with these organizations that were taking really seriously caring for orphans and vulnerable children and seeing that they weren't they were doing truthing they wouldn't have called it that but that they were really as a as a group and a coalition saying okay well it has been orphanages but now like a lot of them in cambodia they're working towards a foster care system and there are these partnerships between the private and the religious and the not religious and the government all thinking about like how do we shift some of these things so we can care for these children well so i I think in the last couple years um it's been reading some of the books as i was writing slow kingdom coming but that that trip has really uh really shaped me and my thinking and just being so impressed by people always who do this kind of work but i love that there are people out there who who keep on not being satisfied in the in the best possible way because because right. um, they want to keep going. And I think that's part of the conversations that you're having too, or how do we keep on getting better at this? Absolutely. And I know our mutual friend, Craig Greenfield, I'm assuming he was one of the guys you hung out with in Cambodia. Yep. Yeah. Um, but man, the, the stuff that he and other folks are doing in that country, I was able to visit there last year as well. And mm-hmm. it's encouraging. It's encouraging because it again, it's, it's people thinking deeply and thinking and really not, not accepting the way it's been done as, as right just because it's the way it's been done, but to challenge the norms and to challenge these concepts and to say, are we doing it the best we can, you know, and Mm -hmm. let's, let's take scripture and use that as our guide. But, but that's something that when you go to the day to day and realities, especially when worldviews conflict, it's it's so complex and so difficult. So that's yeah, that's fantastic. Um, All right. So is the last question, what, uh, what person has, has most impacted your thinking on the care of orphan and at-risk children? Yeah, I I think it's been, um, my colleague, Anel Angerville. So I write about him uh, a little bit, but he's one of my best friends now. And, uh, I thought about him with this question because he really grew up as a, as an orphan or what's called a rest of X sometimes in Haiti, or it's someone who lives with another family and is exploited in this situation. And, um, so getting to become friends with Anel and knowing that he, you know, talks about being a child and, and, uh, being hungry, you know, and how, you know, being seven, eight year old boy going to sleep, you know, crying because his stomach hurt. Um, and 
and then growing up and kind of making it through this hard system and getting an education. By the time I met him, he had uh, finished high school and was a teacher in an elementary school. And that was 13 years ago, pretty soon, maybe six months after I moved to Haiti. Uh, And then for the last 12 years to see this guy who had lived like that in that situation of vulnerability and kind of made his way up through other people's help to to being a graduating from high school, being a teacher. And then I've just watched him thrive and teach me so much as he's helped to mobilize many in the Haitian church to care for other vulnerable children. Um, it has been the person who's really helped, helped to shape me and my thinking on this. And, and there's something if anyone did it, that would be fantastic. But to think uh, that he is also helping these kids because he was partly because he was in that situation himself and he knows what it is to, to be in that spot and to be vulnerable and to be hungry and to be uh, abused. And then uh, and then that he day after day, like in a hard context in Haiti, is just working with a big heart, but also like we've been talking about with this like full, full strategic thinking and the best possible partnerships and all of this um, so that he and uh, and people in the Haitian church are looking out for these vulnerable children is is really inspiring. So Anel keeps shaping my my thoughts in many ways around this question you asked. You know, I think he's been been a person because of his own experience, but also because of his leadership that I'm I'm honored to be mentored by him in some of this work. Well, that's a great place to, to finish up today. So uh, thanks again for your time. Thanks for sharing your wisdom with all of us here on the show. And just thank for all the great work that uh, that you're doing all around the world. Well, thanks for what you're doing, Phil, for these, these really valuable conversations that I learned from that you're holding with other people as well. And thanks for the chance to be part of it today. Well, once again, that was just a lot of fun. I had so such a good time getting to know Kent a little bit more, and I hope that you all out there enjoyed uh, getting to know him as well. He's a guy that is doing some great work, has done some great work, and I know will continue to do great work for many years to come. So, Karen, what what did you think about uh, about that interview and, and what you heard from Kent? There are so, so many things that I was just excited to hear, but also really convicted when I listened to the interview and heard about his book, Slow Kingdom Coming. It immediately was on my short list. I'm leaving tomorrow for a trip for about 10 days, and that is on the top of my list to read, and I'm so excited to read it. One of the things that I think stood out to me the most was just the intentionality. I absolutely respect and get really excited when I hear people like Kent who are in the field and have been in the field for such a long time. And ultimately, there is this conviction and passion for intentionality and respect for the people that we're working alongside of. And I think that that's encouraging to hear. The other part about the interview that I was really encouraged with too is just the overarching humbleness in Kent and all of his responses and the way that he's thinking through how we can come alongside children and families, uh, particularly in his world in Haiti. But I think it's applicable here in America as well as around the globe. Yeah, he had uh, just the, the stuff on short-term trips and just the three questions. I mean, it's just like you said, the humility, it's just a those questions are, are very penetrating and they're, they're three, you know, there's, there's simple questions yet super complex responses when we really dig deep and think about these things at deep levels. And again, these are things we've talked a lot about on this show. Um, but for him to just kind of really put it into the long term, put it into this, this, you know, what am I going to do when I return back home? What difference will it make? Will it, will it make a difference? And, you know, how, how does it affect things like how I vote? How does it affect things like how I think? Um, you know, you and I were just talking even right before we were recording, you know, when we, when we watch a movie, I, I just watched The Zookeeper's Wife with my, with my wife last night. And, you know, when we watch that movie and we walk outside and we realize, man, what do we, what do we have here in the United States? The, the freedom we have, but it's not just for us, right? It, it's something that we can use that to do things. 
Um, it doesn't mean we wallow around and go, oh man, we're miserable people because we live in such opulence. No, no. It's what can we do with this for the kingdom? What can we do with this for others to help others, to serve others? Um, and what does that look like? And so when we visit someone, what does that look like when we come home? And so I just really appreciated his thinking. I appreciate his books. Um, and I, I think you all out there, if you haven't read them yet, definitely pick them up. I think that you will uh, learn a lot. You'll be, you'll be convicted, but it, it'll, it's not a, it's not a guilt conviction. It's, it's really a conviction that really wants, it, it motivates. It, it wants, it, it, hopefully that's something that we'll be able to do here on the show with you as well is motivate you, not, not sit you, not, not really send you in a tailspin of, of guilt, but really put you into a, uh, you know, an upward, uh, trajectory of, of hope and of, of an ability to really impact others around you. Um, yeah. So any, any, any other thoughts on that? I I am in complete agreement. Absolutely. And I think that one of the things that stood out again for me when listening to his interview, Phil, was just this drive to do better, a drive to never stop trying to um, be better. And that doesn't mean be smarter, have the best program or have the best ministry or the best organization. But ultimately what you're saying of just hoping and um, and pressing in and, and trying to learn more and um, learn what other people are doing. And I think that's what we're all trying to do. Um, for those of you that are listening and the reason that even this podcast exists is to just come together and, and desire to keep learning and and trying to, to get better at what we're doing. Ultimately, not for our glory and not for our accolades, but for the people that we get to work with, but ultimately too for the kingdom. Yeah, and I just want to thank again Trey Livesay for introducing me uh, to Kent through his book recommendation, and it, and it really uh, puts it out there to you listening as well. You know, when we say give us feedback, give us suggestions of content, of different segments you'd want to hear, of different guests that we should get on the show, we we really listen. And, and I know that you guys know people that we don't know, and I know that you can give those folks to us um, so that we can get them out to more people to share their wisdom and hopefully encourage all of us to be better and better every day. Um, with that, we have another uh, great friend of mine. I actually uh, was had the pleasure of getting to know Lisa Slavovsky of International Justice Mission about... Uh, 15 years ago. So we launched a church together in Atlanta, Georgia, and God has continued uh, to have us cross paths over the last uh, 15 years or so. And now we all get to hear from her in the Thoughts from the Field segment, sharing really what, what one of the big issues that the, she really believes we're facing today uh, in our world and how we can address it. So here it goes. My name is Lisa Slavovsky, and I'm the aftercare specialist for International Justice Missions Africa region. And one of the challenges we see in the need for uh, children, um, and specifically in Ghana, in Ghana we're working on issues of child trafficking into the fishing industry, and um, children are trafficked from um, all over the, the Volta, Lake Volta region of Ghana and along the coast of Ghana into um, the Lake Volta region. And as they are coming out of these scenarios of uh, child trafficking and returning um, to their home communities, um, the need for communities and churches to be equipped to know how to care for the needs of these traumatized children and to be able to provide care directly for them to return to their families and to their home communities in a way that doesn't require them to go to institutional care, um, but also that helps them to be safe from being re-trafficked. Um, so one of the the challenges that, that I think is present, but there's, there's such great models out there is how do we mobilize um, the local church to be part of this solution, to actually learn how to care for the specialized needs of these children and help support them to remain in their families, in their communities, um, and for that to be part of their healing and recovery process. 
Well, thanks again, Lisa. And and as I said before, uh, coming into her uh, thoughts from the field, uh, God's really kind of brought us together in different ways. And it's really cool. I've really in the last few years realized that God's going to put in my path who I'm supposed to talk with in different situations. And and this story with Lisa is a great example of that. Hopefully it will encourage you out there to just really trust that God will, you know, give you the right relationships and give you the right meetings with people, no matter where you are in the world. So... This one, I just I just landed in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, and I went to my hotel. I had about 20 minutes, and then the people I was with said, hey, let's go to a cafe. So we went to this cafe for lunch, and I'm sitting there and just looking out on the street. I happened to sit in the seat that looked on the street, which is relevant to this, as you'll see. And about five minutes later into our lunch, we're talking, and I look out on the street in a little tuk-tuk, which is basically a, a motorcycle with a little, you know, uh, carriage on the back. It's a little, it's the taxi there in Phnom Penh. Um, I look out there, and Lisa is driving by with three of her friends, and we actually make eye contact. She was talking with her friends, and I was talking with mine, but somehow we both look up at that moment. I see her, and she just drives by. And we kind of have this moment of, wait a sec, is that really you? Wait, what's going on here? Because I had never been to Phnom Penh. She actually used to work in Cambodia, so it made more sense for her to be there. But she hadn't been there for a few years um, because she was doing uh, some different work in D.C. And so, anyway, long story short, I ended up connecting with her on email. We ended up meeting up that night at a, at a uh, restaurant and talking about things that I really needed to hear for my trip and my research that I was doing in Cambodia. So it was just a really, really fun, um, <laughs> kind of fun, small world story. But uh, Phnom Penh's a pretty big city, for those of you who don't know. So the fact that we met was just God saying, hey, this is, this is what's supposed to happen on this trip. So that's just one of many stories, and I'm sure you all have them out there, too. Too, but um, expect God to do things, uh, I think is the lesson learned there. And, and always be on the lookout for his evidence all around you. Um, so with that, we now have the Phil and Karen recommend segment, which I love. And especially today when I get to hear a recommendation from, from Karen um, and you get to hear that same one. So, so Karen, what do you got for us? All right, Phil, that was a great story. What a powerful story. And a, just a reminder that God is uh, for us and continually making connections for his kingdom. At the beginning of the show today, you guys heard me talk about secondary stress and vicarious trauma. And the book that I want to recommend today is is related, but it's also, I think, um, just a great book in general for us to have related to our walk with the Lord and our faith journey. And ultimately, when we are in any type of helping capacity, whether that is a mom taking care of kids or a dad taking care of kids or a clinician like myself or people working with children and adolescents and young adults here in America or overseas, ultimately, one of the most important, the most important thing is is our relationship with Christ. How is our faith journey? And this book that I want to recommend to you guys, it's called An Infinite Journey, and it's by Dr. Andrew Davis. And this book is a really rich book filled with a lot of information that just encourages and motivates us to grow in our Christ-likeness. And and that is the most important part of taking care of ourselves so that we're in a place that we can pour into and serve and help to take care or educate or provide mental health care to others. And I think that's so incredibly important, not only um, just in general for our lives and the work that we're doing, but it really is a barrier. It is a way to help us um, kind of protect ourselves against the impact of secondary stress. It's a way to protect ourselves against this vicarious trauma that can happen when we're taking care of other people and when we're pouring into other people. And so again, that book is An Infinite Journey, and it's by Dr. Andrew Davis. Well, thanks again for that recommendation, and and that will close out our show today. So once again, I just implore you out there to take what you learned today, take the other things that God's put in your life, really use them to uh, help you to love orphaned and vulnerable children more and more every day. Have a great week. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.